2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to the house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat, on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw him from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Sorry, it's a long one. <sighs> Joab sent David a full account of the... Um, of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger sent out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, don't let this upset you, the sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. 
When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of the mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The next passage is from Psalm 51, that's on page 489. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, my name is Keith. I'm a member of the 10 and 10 a.m. congregation, but uh, it's my great privilege to be able to bring the Word of God uh, to us this evening. Um, if you've got your Bible there, if you'd open up at page 266 for that first reading, we'll be looking at chapter 11, chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, and I think you'll find it helpful to have the text in front of you. Um, let me pray as we begin. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your life-giving word. May it be a lamp to our feet and a light for our paths. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, In many ways, David was a very impressive person. Uh, He was successful. Uh, You know the story. As a young man, he courageously took on the Philistine giant, the hero, Goliath, and defeated him. He led armies to significant military victories. He was a a king who could free his people from oppression. And he was a man of character. 
Uh, 1 Samuel 26 alludes to his righteousness, his faithfulness. He was loyal to his friend Jonathan. And if you were with us last week, you would have heard of the, the kindness that he showed to a man who was lame in both feet, Mephibosheth, uh, welcoming him to his own table. And then we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And what we see in this story is almost unimaginable. What happens in this chapter gives new meaning to the concept of a fall from grace. And before we look at the details, I want to say three things by way of introduction. The first is to say that what is described in this chapter is shocking. It is appalling what happens in this chapter. The events take place in the context of war, and you, like me, have probably had the privilege of never being in a war zone. But uh, what we've seen on our screens about the events in Ukraine, it just gives us more glimpse, doesn't it, of the, the confusion, the terror, the horror of war. But here in this chapter, King David, he's evaded that, managed to evade that, to set aside all the horror, to, to bracket it out of his life, because we're told in verse 1, in springtime, when kings go out to war, David sends off Joab, his general, he sends off all of his army. What does David do? But David remained in Jerusalem. Now the chapter, it may not be set in a war zone, but we confront here another kind of terror and horror, adultery, sexual activity where one or both parties are married to someone else, and murder. Adultery is a shocking breach of trust. And murder, I mean, what's worse than taking somebody's life? But the form they take here is of another magnitude. What we see in this chapter is a, it's a staggering abuse of power. Friends, I think sometimes in, in Christian circles we actually misunderstand sin. Um, we know God hates all wrongdoing. You know, any deviation from his life-giving ways is abhorrent to him. Um, the prophet Habakkuk puts it like this, says of God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. That, that's our God. And so we think all sin's equal. But it's not. You know, our irritability, our looking down on others, our indifference in the face of those in need, our lack of generosity, our doubting God's goodness, these things, they're all deeply wrong. They're worthy of judgment, but they're not of the same order that we see in this chapter. Some sin has horrific consequences. And I think this misunderstanding of somehow seeing all sin as the same has contributed to the way that the church at times has responded so appallingly to abuse within its ranks. And the rhetoric, it goes something like this. Oh, we're all sinners. We all make mistakes. You know, let's forgive and move on. And in the process, great evil is overlooked or downplayed and lives are destroyed. 
So the first thing I want to say tonight is if, if you have suffered abuse at the hands of someone who is powerful, I want to say how sorry I am. And it's not your fault. And a terrible evil has been done to you. The second thing. My guess is that we probably don't have a murderer in the room tonight. But if you have committed the sin of adultery, I want to say something to you. I want to say how thankful I am that you are here. I hope you've turned from this sin, you've found peace in your heart from the wonderful forgiveness that God gives. But if you've not yet experienced that forgiveness, my prayer is that by the end of this talk, you'll know how to get it. And the uh, final thing I want to say by way of introduction is to all of us. Um, as we look at God's word to us here in these chapters, uh, I'm trying to walk a bit of a line tonight, okay? I've said that for most, if not all of us, our sin's not like King David's sin. Um, if you're not an adulterer, a murderer, one who uses your power to abuse others, then you're not like him. And yet, and yet, David's experience speaks so powerfully into our experience. There's a model here for understanding our wrongdoing and for understanding what can be done about that so we have much that we can learn. So tonight, two points. First one, the dark depravity of sin. And then two, we'll look at the wonder of grace and forgiveness. So let's dive in. Number one, the dark depravity of sin. As we've already noted, King David is not at war. While others are out there risking their lives, killing the enemy, David's killing time in the comfort of his own home. And back in 1 Samuel 8, the Israelites, they'd asked the prophet Samuel for a king who would go out before us and fight our battles. David has stopped being that king. David was safe, right? Safe from the dangers of the battlefield, but actually he wasn't safe. Not from himself. The walls of Jerusalem, no protection from the flaws in his heart. So the adultery. We just get the bald facts here. David has an afternoon siesta, goes for a stroll on the roof. He catches sight of a very beautiful woman. And his glance becomes a gaze. And he makes some inquiries. He finds out who she is. He ignores the fact that she's the wife of one of his serving troops. All that matters to him are his desires. So he sent messengers and he took her and he slept with her. And she returns home and verse 5, we're told she's pregnant. And nothing but action here, is there? No conversation, no hint of caring or affection or love, only lust. And just notice in verse 5 um, how Bathsheba is described. She's just called the woman, not even given her name. Now, don't misunderstand what's happening here in this text, okay? This is not a misogynistic telling of a story, you know, where it belittles the woman and it sort of makes her voiceless and almost invisible. No, uh, uh 
the focus is on David to place the responsibility where it belongs with this man, with his abuse of power. Bathsheba is the victim. She's not a willing participant. She was doing the right thing, verse 4, purifying herself from her period. She was pursuing holiness. David was pursuing wickedness. And the key word in this story is not in your text. It's in verse 4. And the NIV says, David sent messages to get her. No, it should read, David sent messages and took her. Long ago, the prophet Samuel had warned that kings are takers. And that's what David is. He sees, he wants, he takes, he uses her, he abuses her. Now let me pause for a moment because we need to talk about adultery and sexual sin. It's not easy, but we need to talk about it. I'm sure David didn't wake up that morning and think he would commit adultery. That's not how adultery works. And usually adultery is not primarily about sex. You know what it's about? It's about emotions, feelings. When you're feeling worn out and stressed and when life feels pretty dull and boring, when you're feeling a bit disconnected from people and your relationships aren't meeting your needs, that's when we're more open to temptation. The lure of another, the way they look, the, in, their engaging personality, the, the, the excitement of something different and newer creates a spark and before you know it, one thing leads to another. How can we, how do we stop ourselves heading down that track? Now, if you're married, uh, let me speak to you first. If you're married, I want to say to you, Invest in your marriage. Invest in your marriage. God has designed marriage to be a relationship of intimacy and deep connection, of openness and friendship where we can share safely what's on our heart and have those emotional needs met. Like the first marriage recorded in the Bible, Genesis 2.25, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Completely open perfectly safe. That's what a good marriage is. I want to say something particularly to husbands. Brothers, what is our calling as husbands? To love our wives as Christ loved the church. Serving her, giving up our needs and our wants for her, our very lives for her, making her feel Cherished, precious. When it comes to marriage, the grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is green where you water it. Invest in your marriage. If you're not married, well, it's not as if your relational emotional needs don't matter and you're destined to miss out because God has given us the gift of friendship. The healthy nourishment of friendships do us enormous good. And I want to say to you, invest in them. They meet those needs for intimacy and connection. Part of our difficulty with the word intimacy is, 
is our world has taken that word and equated it with sex. Everything gets sexualized. So people come to think that the relational connection they long for can only be met with sexual activity. But the truth is that there is a depth of intimacy and connection in healthy, non-sexualized friendships that's far superior to what you see in many marriages and certainly superior to what you see in casual sexual activity. I mean, just look at David and Bathsheba. No intimacy there. It's just lust and abuse. So if you're not married, I want to encourage you to invest in your friendships. One more thing. Pornography. Pornography is increasingly a problem, not just for men, but for women. And this is driven by the same emotional neediness, the desire for a bit of excitement in life. But this is an industry that operates like David in 2 Samuel 11. It takes and it uses people and it abuses people, especially women. Pornography is not a little bit of fun on the side. Remember Jesus' words. Whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Bring this sin out of the darkness into the light. Talk to someone and get some help. Friends, this incident in David's life reminds us how suddenly and how fatally any one of us can fall, myself included. So let's take to heart what the Apostle Paul says and flee, flee, run away from sexual immorality. Now, because of the nature of this topic, um, I thought it would be helpful for Susan to share some thoughts and she's going to come up now and do that. Sheba was a victim here. We're looking at the ancient Near East, man versus woman, a king and a soldier's wife. There was absolutely no good way that Bathsheba could have said no in any shape or form. But what I do want to say today is that although in this case adultery, the responsibility was with David women also commit adultery. And like we saw with David, it is a series of decisions. You don't one day suddenly wake up in bed next to someone that you're not married to. It starts with a fight, a dissatisfaction, a hurt with your spouse that you nurse and it grows. Envy creeps in and somebody other than your husband starts to look very appealing. He's thoughtful in a way that your husband isn't. He's sensitive in a way that your husband isn't. He appreciates you in all the ways that your husband doesn't. And you have so much more in common than you do with your husband. And what started as a glance then escalates. But can I remind you that for David too, it began with a glance and it escalated. And don't be deceived. 
that man that looks newer and better, perfect, I'm going to give something away. Here is a spoiler. He's not. He's going to be sinful. He's going to be disappointing. And he's going to hurt you in all the new ways that your husband didn't hurt you. And David's sin had repercussions for so many, for Bathsheba, for Uriah, for their child. And somebody else paid the price for his sins, and that is adultery. Our actions hurt other people, and it's never too late to stop and repent. But even if you did give in to temptation, I want to say that there is a clear point of return Where there is repentance, there is grace. When David was confronted, he immediately repented. And what is remarkable was that forgiveness was given instantly. It's never too late to face up to sin and ask for God's forgiveness. So bring sin into the light and be freed. But most of all, know that in the face of such a dark story... God was not surprised. God doesn't run away from such valleys and such darkness. He's with us. He shines his light upon us. He picks us up from the depths. He loves us. He forgives us. He heals us. And he restores us. So don't don't turn away from him, but turn towards him. There is absolutely nothing that Jesus' blood cannot wash clean. Thanks very much, Susan. Well, we've had the adultery. Now to the murder. Now, David's got a problem on his hands, right? He's got, he's, he's got someone else's uh, wife pregnant, and it's not a good look. What's he going to do about it? And the obvious way forward seems to be a cover-up. So... David sends to the battle lines for Uriah the Hittite, um, a foreigner, and he comes. And then he institutes plan A. David sends Uriah home to relax and enjoy himself with his wife. Verse 8. And then we're told three times that Uriah doesn't go home. Why not? Well, look again at verse 11. Uriah said to David, the ark... And Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Uriah is not like David. Uriah is a man of integrity. This foreigner, he shows loyalty to Israel's God, and people and his fellow shot soldiers. So David tries plan B. Get Uriah drunk and that might weaken his resolve. But no, verse 13, in the evening Uriah went out to sleep on his mat. Among his master's servants, he did not go home. Uh, doing the right thing will cost Uriah his life because David's plan C does work. He writes a letter to his general Joab and makes Uriah carry his own death warrant. 
Verse 15. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Job, sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. And that's exactly what happens. You read about it in the next couple of verses. And then Joab sends a messenger to David to report on what's happened. And from a military point of view, this is really bad news, okay, to have some troops killed. And you think David would be a bit worked up about this. But the last thing the messenger says, verse 24, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And for David, oh, no anger at some pointless loss of life, no. Verse 25, David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Don't let this upset you. Words of David to placate his own guilty conscience. Just think about this. He's God's appointed king. He's the one who put Mephibosheth at his table in kindness. And now he puts Uriah in his grave. The Bible tells us that sin is deceitful, that it tricks us, that it doesn't deliver on what it promises that it will deliver. It's so deceitful that it deceives us into thinking that we're not deceived. And with sin, one thing leads to another. It doesn't have to be seen in this story. You know, you tell one lie, I've got to tell one more lie and then another lie down the track. You cross one small boundary in a relationship, that makes it easy to cross a bigger one down the track. And sin always had consequences. Uriah was not the only one to die in response to David's request. Other women lost their husbands. Parents lost their sons. And at the end of this chapter, we read of Bathsheba, verse 26, she mourns for her husband. The dark depravity of sin, coveting, lust, adultery, deceit, murder. But as we near the end of the chapter, everything seems to have fallen into place. Look at verse 27. After the time of mourning was over, David had her, Uriah's wife, brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. And it all looks so neat. War has been used to cover up for murder. Media coverage has been kept to a minimum. There are no loose strings until we reach the very final sentence in the chapter. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. One of the, one of the ways that sin deceives us um, is we think we can do stuff in secret and get away with it. God sees everything. Nothing falls between the cracks. Nothing can be covered up. He sees into the depths of our hearts and he actually knows what's in our hearts better than we do. And friends, I want to say to you, this is actually a wonderful thing because it actually opens the door to finding the forgiveness that we all need. 
So point two, the wonder of grace and forgiveness. As we move into chapter 12, um, the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to David. There in verse 1. Now, you just think about this, right? After the events of chapter 11, you want to be a little bit careful in what you say to this David guy. So Nathan takes quite a subtle approach. He presents a short parable or a little case study to David. There in verse 1, he says, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. Uh, The rich man's not very interesting. We're just told... Verse 2, the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, right? He's got a lot of stuff, full stop. That's all we're told. It's the poor man that grabs our attention. He had one female lamb. That's all he had. That was his livelihood. And then we have this lovely, tender description of this lamb being treated like a a treasured and precious daughter. Um, Look there at verse 3. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. And it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And then in the story, the rich man has a visitor and needs lunch. But rather than deplete his own stock, the rich man takes. Verse 4, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. He takes all the poor man has, something precious, something beloved, and then he barbecues it for his guest. How does David respond to this little story told about him? Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Uh, The story told about him, he doesn't get it until Nathan opens his mouth again. Verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. David's conscience was so dull He didn't see the light until it was shone right in his face. And then Nathan goes on. He speaks on behalf of God. He reminds David of what God has given him. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. David's a taker. God is a giver. He's no killjoy. He longs to bless us, to turn us from from foolish ways, the things that we think will make us happy, to give us the things that are true and beautiful and good and give us life to the full. This is our God. In verse 9, the charge is laid of the charge of murder. In verses 10 and 12, the sentence is given. David's been exposed. How would you react to that public sort of humiliation like that? I don't know. 
Um, many people couldn't, couldn't bear up before that, but God in his mercy enables David to make the appropriate response. And in verse 13, we see two very dramatic statements put right next to each other. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He fesses up. And then immediately Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. The Lord has taken away your sin. As soon as we confess our sin and turn from it, the Lord takes it away. If chapter 11 tells of David's fall from grace, chapter 12 talks of David's fall into grace. David's sin really was forgiven. Yes, there were consequences. Verse 10 says the sword would never depart from his house. You read on the history of his ongoing kings in his line. Yes, there is trouble. The sword is there. And verse 14, we're told the son born from the adulterous liaison would die. And we need to understand that sin forgiven by God may still leave human scars in consequence. But in the miracle of God's grace, David's sin really is taken away. His household is restored. And in verse 24, we see for the first time, David treats Bathsheba as his wife. He comforts her. And then they have a son, Solomon, another son, and we're told that the Lord loved him. And in God's amazing grace, this marriage, this family that arose in such awful circumstances from this shipwreck is blessed by the Lord. And this is our God, the one who brings life out of death. And even in the midst of this catastrophic failure, the Lord was with David. God had promised that he would build a house for David, that he would establish his throne forever. And adultery and murder cannot get in the way of God's promise. And we see this fulfilled in the New Testament where our Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, who unlike David and us was without sin, he willingly bears our sin in all of its horror and takes it away. So you see, our, our lives, our, our futures, they don't, they don't depend on us. They depend upon God's promises and a core promise. In fact, a promise at the very heart of the Christian gospel is this message of the forgiveness of sins. It's not, Christian message isn't try harder, you know, do better, more good stuff than bad stuff. No, 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 no. The Christian message is there's forgiveness. And when we face reality, when we're honest with ourselves, when we own up to our failings, there's forgiveness and freedom and joy. I'm not King David, but I have the same need as King David. I am the man. I haven't murdered anybody. But as Jesus warned, those who are angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. That's me. I've not committed adultery, but I felt the tug of lust in my heart. 
but there's forgiveness. In Jesus, our sin, it's cleansed, it's washed, it's wiped away, it's blotted out, it's stomped upon, it's thrown into the depths of the sea, it's gone. There's forgiveness. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And friends, I want to say to you tonight, if you know this truth, if this truth in your heart brings you joy and freedom and peace, I want to say thank God for that. Thank God for that. But if you know there is unconfessed sin in your life and it's eating you up and you're wracked with guilt, I want you to read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, which speak of the forgiveness that David found. And I want you to hear the wonderful promise of God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. From Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Heavenly Father, thank you for the mercy you have shown us. Please work in our hearts that we might know the depths of your love and your grace and fill us with all joy and peace in knowing that forgiveness that is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.